and I walk outside and there is a black snake. Like, I don't know what to do about it. Nothing. Not Nothing. made for this life. <laughs> Coming to you from the heart of Thomas Jefferson's Academical Village, this is Academical, the official podcast of the Virginia Policy Review. The Virginia Policy Review is an independent organization staffed by students at the Frank Batten School of Leadership and Public Policy at the University of Virginia, with a mission to publish work that will impact the wider policy debate. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Academical. Welcome in. I'm Sean Belowski, a second-year MPP student at Batten. And man, 2020 is relentless. Late last week, we learned the news that Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away at the age of 87. You know, my, my first thought was that in the span of two months, we lost RBG and John Lewis, two genuine American heroes who devoted their lives to making this country live up to its founding ideals. And while it's a testament to them that they fought literally until their dying breath, it's a shame for us that our democratic institutions are so fragile that they had to. Our episode today revolves around one area where democracy in Virginia needs to be fixed, and that's the topic of gerrymandering and redistricting. Ginsburg actually in a talk last year said, quote, however one comes out on the legal issues, partisan gerrymandering unsettles the fundamental premise that people elect their representatives, not vice versa, end quote. Voters in Virginia actually have a question on the ballot this year whether a redistricting commission should be established to draw district lines or whether the current system should remain in place. And uh, the current system has the legislature drawing the districts. And in other words, that's that's the vice versa that, that Ginsburg alluded to. My co-host today is Morgan Smith, who's the managing editor of the Virginia Policy Review and who, and who also wrote her undergraduate thesis on this topic. So I'm excited for you all to meet Morgan. Then we're going to speak with Brian Cannon, who runs Fair Maps VA, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated to trying to get this amendment passed. Brian's actually been working on this issue in Virginia for a long time now. You've probably seen uh, his op-ed recently in the Richmond Times-Dispatch and quoted in various places, but few people in Virginia really are as well-versed on this topic as Brian. And with early voting, actually starting Friday last week, Virginians are voting on this issue now. So we really wanted to lay out what's exactly uh, in this amendment and what you'll be voting on. So um, let's go ahead. Let's get to it. Let's meet Morgan. So Morgan, I know um, you're like me. We are, you and I are completely virtual this fall. Um, so just kind of curious, how, how are you feeling? How are you doing these first few weeks? So far, so good. Um, I have been obviously taking all the classes that you're taking, um, but I'm really excited. This morning I had my introduction to the Bat Ambassadors. So I'm looking forward to um, bringing in the next cohort of Bat students. And then right before we started this podcast, I sent out all of the acceptance emails for the new staff of editors for VPR. That's exciting. So I'm looking. Yeah, very exciting. Um, and I think, of course, I don't know what they look like. And I just looked at their resume. So I can't talk about like their um, gender or racial diversity. But in their policy areas of interest, it seems like we have a lot of diversity. So I'm, I'm hoping that the discussions that they bring to the table are really rich. And so you're the managing editor of EPR. You mentioned kind of bringing on these editors. So what's kind of what's the rest of the semester going to look like? This semester is going to be pretty easy for the editing staff. Um, we are uh, going to be in the solicitation uh, phase of this end goal of a journal. Um, so everybody on the editing staff and hopefully everybody on VP, VPR staff um, will end up soliciting 
professionals, peers, teachers um, for for articles for our um, journal in the spring. And then I think based on what Jeff's grand plans are, Jeff, the editor in chief, um, he he wants to start up the blog again. So I think the editing staff is going to be in charge of um, pitching their ideas for blogs. Jeff and I will have to listen to all of them. Uh, and then, yeah, get the blogs written and, and posted. Now, now that it's on the podcast, I guess you have to, you have to do the blog. Yeah, we, we've got to do it. Um, somebody's got to set up that website better than I did first, I think. Well, um, you know, we're getting ready to have a conversation with um, Brian Cannon, who runs Fair Maps VA, and and it's kind of an advocacy group that's dedicated to to passing this Amendment One in Virginia. It's on the ballot, and and um, now that early voting started, and you know, we'll be on the ballot for folks in person in November. Um, but Morgan, you um, you actually did some undergraduate work around redistricting and gerrymandering with your with your undergraduate thesis, and so I guess one. Um, you know, what, um, what led you to, to writing that and, and kind of, um, you know, what have you, um, what have you taken away from, you know, kind of, um, looking closer at Virginia's proposed policy? Um, so I guess I'll start a little bit with my path to Baton. Um, so I, it seems natural now, but I, it was definitely haphazard when it was happening. Um, so I graduated in May in 2019 from a small public liberal arts college um, in Maryland called St. Mary's College of Maryland. Um, and initially when I started there, I had no interest in politics whatsoever. Of course, the 2016 election, I think that was the beginning of my second year there, um, definitely propelled me into taking political science classes and needing to find more out about the system. And so I focused a lot on domestic politics. That was kind of my area of interest. Um, so I, I got a political science and public policy um, dual BA. And towards the end of my time at St. Mary's, I had already taken um, a few internships, one with the St. Mary's County Health Department, and then two within the governor's office, um, once in Department of Veterans Affairs and the other in his ledge office. Um, and so at that time, I was already entrenched in state politics. I knew kind of, you know, what the deal was, what was the um, hot button issue that was happening. And one of them is that Maryland is crazy gerrymandered. Um, I think that the Washington Post, um, they did an article a couple years ago, um, and I think that they said in 2016, Maryland Republicans won 37 percent of the vote for um, U.S. House seats, but they got one out of the eight available seats based on that 37% one. So you can kind of tell how gerrymandered it is. Um, and I was taking my thesis course um, with one of the domestic politics professors um, and she said, pick whatever you want. And I was like, I got this. Um, so I, I chose gerrymandering. I looked, um, I think I sent you the paper. Um, I looked at past cases, kind of what's going on right now, the definition of gerrymandering, which a lot of people don't know. Um, and it just really, it, it's frustrating to learn about gerrymandering and to like dive into it because you realize that it really dilutes um, everyone's voice 
And at some point you're in the majority and you're benefiting from gerrymandering. But as we've seen in Virginia, that could easily switch and then you're not benefiting from it anymore. So um, I felt very passionate about, I still feel passionate about um, equitable policymaking. And I think really hammering out gerrymandering from like our current vernacular uh, is one step further to getting equitable policies passed. Um, and to answer your second question, how do I feel about uh, Virginia's Amendment 1 that uh, hopefully people are voting for today? Um, I, I'm interested in the fact that they have a, um, it's a bipartisan commission. They're going to have um, legislate, legislators and citizens on it, which is great. Um, but I think it'll be interesting to hear what Brian has to say about whether or not the bipartisan commission is the best um, idea or like path forward for Virginia. Um, in my thesis, I talked a lot about independent commissions trying to get uh, legislators out of the commissions themselves. We've seen that happen um, in a bunch of different states. Even Maryland had an executive order by the governor um, in the last two years to get one of these commissions on board, but it still has legislators in it. Um, so yeah, it'll be interesting to see what Brian's professional opinion is, but if it were me, I would really be trying to hone in on getting an independent commission with no legislators involved. Yeah, I mean, it's just the definition of a conflict of interest, right? When the people who are who are elected are the ones who are drawing the maps for their elections. <laughs> and so, um, so yeah, it's um, definitely uh, a topic that is, is kind of heated up in Virginia. And, um, you know, we'll get into that with Brian. So here's our conversation with Brian Cannon of Fair Maps VA. So, so Brian, uh, we start our our episodes off with all of our guests, just given everything that's been happening since March, you know, just um, how are you feeling? Uh, so I have a, a, a first grader who's homeschooling virtual or not homeschooling. He's virtual schooling for our Richmond public schools. And we have an eight month old. And, um, you know, on the theory that God doesn't give you anything you can handle, our eight month old is like the easiest, happiest little baby you could ever imagine. So uh, good because I get to spend a lot of time with my family, uh, but weird because usually this is when I'd be out on the road talking all the time to everybody in every corner of Virginia about why we need to vote yes on one. I, so I have twin five-year-olds and a two-year-old. And so I very much understand, you know, our, our five-year-olds are trying to do virtual, you know, our two-year-old, we're, we're doing some homeschooling stuff, but it's, it's tough. You know, how has, you know, with COVID, how has your work and especially with this advocacy, you know, how has that changed in, in a COVID world? I think everybody's trying to figure out what the right distance is, right? And so in a, in a, in a world in which Usually we, we man the polls on election day. So we have folks you know, staffing the polls saying, thanks for voting. I don't care who you vote for, but once you go get your sticker, talk to me about gerrymandering. Like that's a great way to do it, but that's a very personal touch. So we're doing lit drops now. We're doing a lot more text messaging. We've, we've bought the platform uh, called Outvote, um, which is a, a pretty good uh, texting platform. And then of course, social media usage has you know, gone through the roof. And so we're, we're working in that space as well. Um, but it is weird not to be at, you know, a regular monthly League of Women Voters meeting in some part of Virginia to talk about this. 
Do you have any um, collaborations with anybody else who's actually at the polls physically right now, or are you just hoping that people vote yes on Amendment 1? <laughs> so we have folks with signs at the polls. We have volunteers with signs at the polls, and, and they've got literature if you want to. They're masked up with vote yes on one maps, masks, uh, usually. So uh, we are trying, but it's just, uh, it's just so awkward. It's so my hard. son, my the, my son who's who's six. When we whenever we go to see like a family member or something like that, and um, his question to us is always, "Can I hug them?" And the answer is often no, and that sucks, right? Yeah. And because I'm like, that's what we all need now the most. But yeah. Mm -hmm. We're having the same problem at home. My five year old's favorite saying now is like, "We'll do it after the virus." And uh, I mean, it's just it's so sad. I mean, it truly. I mean, it's 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 depressing. Um, well, well, Brian, before we get into the, the amendment, I, I want to dive a little bit into, um, into your background, because I think you have a really kind of interesting path. Um, and, and just kind of want to dive into that a little bit. So um, I, I, you get your undergrad from Women Mary, looks like you taught for a year, then you worked for uh, then Governor Warner. And so I was wondering if you could just kind of talk a little bit, um, you know, that that time you get out of undergrad, your path, and then eventually taking you to law school. Yeah, my plan was to teach for five years and go to law school and perhaps run for the House of Delegates and knock knock off, uh, at the time, Brad Mars was in there. He's a Republican delegate in Richmond. And and I thought he was a, uh, a social conservative where that didn't fit the district. And now John Adams represents that district. Um, and um, but, but, but anyway, what I ended up um, getting a call from Mark Warner's body guy at the time, the guy, I mean, body guy is not a glamorous terms, no guns a lot of coffee and like, you know, a bag of stuff for the governor, right? Personal valet kind of thing. And, um, and uh, I got a call from the current guy saying, Hey, I'm leaving. I know you're a Sorensen guy. You'd be interested. Would you be interested in doing this? And I was teaching and I was loving, it. I was teaching at Huguenot high school here in Richmond. I was teaching uh, honors government and I was teaching like a, and like a, a remedial kind of entry level us history course. It was so fun. Um, and I really didn't want to do it, but then I decided at least I'd go take an interview with Mark Warner. Uh, he's my political hero personally. And, um, and I did, and he was like, well, what are you, what are you doing? And I was like, I told him, I told him this idea about running against Brad Mars in maybe three or four years. And he was like, what do you have to offer anybody? You're 20, whatever. You know? I was like, huh? I was like, but I'm passionate. And he's like, yeah, but support somebody who's like got some real experience to get things done. And I was, and I was like, oh, I've got a lot to learn from this guy. So uh, after the school year ended, I went to go work for uh, Governor Warner. Well, and then, um, then you, you go to, um, you go to law school, you know, what, what took you to law school and, and, um, you know, how did that kind of set you on the, the path you're on now? I was always wanted to go to law school. I did a lot of mock trial in high school. I was that nerd. Um, and then I did it again in college, had a lot of success with it and, and really enjoyed it. I was just too short to play football. So my competitive outlet was mock trial. Um, and I loved it. Um, and so I went to law school. That was kind of always the plan. Uh, started in 2008, the economy crashed. So everybody's plans, period, and particularly in law school, were were thwarted. Um, and I, I would have loved to have been a prosecutor. I spent my two all summer in the prosecutor's office here in Richmond um, and under Mike Herring, who had just a really good office and did really good work. And I mean, it's really the best job in law because as a prosecutor, your job, your client is justice. And that's really cool and really powerful and an awesome opportunity to do the right thing by people. Um, and, and I think we're seeing that a lot, very much a lot right now. But, um, but I would have made more money teaching uh, high school government than I would have been a 
being a prosecutor if you take out my student loans. So I went and joined a law firm and that was like the most boring thing I ever did. They're wonderful people at Harmon Clater, Corgan and Wellman, but that is not my, uh, my, my preferred path. So I got into the kind of startup community here and then was recruited to run this mostly because of things I had done uh, prior to in, in college and then in law school ar- around election law. Can you talk a little bit about what ignited your passion for gerrymandering and redistricting? So, you know, the first thing that actually I cared about in politics, because um, my parents are Republican. I grew up in Southern Chesterfield County. I grew up a Republican, though one of my friends reminded me that in uh, we were talking about ranked choice voting, and I always use the 1992 presidential elections, and Ross Perot is like the spoiler slash whatever, you know. And um, one of my high school friends re- uh, re- reminded me that when we were in fifth grade together, that I was the one vote for Ross Perot in our elementary school class election. <laughs> and everybody thought it was weird. But, um, but, but uh, the, anyway, um, the, the first thing I really cared about was money and politics. And, um, you know, in the, in the late 90s, basically, you know, Bill Clinton was, was you know, allegedly renting out the Lincoln bedroom for a hundred grand in soft money donations to the DNC. And that's disgusting, even, even though I liked Clinton, net net. Um, and then, uh, and then you, you hear John McCain harping on this and he's calling both sides out, like the maverick John McCain from 98, 99, like that was my guy. And, um, and then I go to college and Citizens United happen, you know, or, or McCain-Feingold passes and then and McConnell v. FEC cuts it back. Citizens United, right before law school, guts it completely. Um, and so really what I come, kind of come to the conclusion of studying this in, and studying it in law school is there's no good fix for money in politics. It's like the uh, dino DNA of, of you know, right, really life finds a way. Money will find a way in. You can have transparency and other things. We certainly do better to improve it. Um, maybe a public finance system would, would actually go a long way. But as long as you believe in a First Amendment and, you know, you got 10 grand to put up a billboard, who am I to tell you you can't do that kind of thing? And if, as long as you believe that, then, then it's hard to solve. But scratching the other, you know, problems, the surface of other problems in our, in our republic, and it doesn't take you very long to get to gerrymandering. How have, since you've been kind of involved in this fight in Virginia, how specifically have you seen the fight and kind of uh, this process evolve, especially considering, you know, the pretty, pretty sharp political shift that we've seen in the state over the last several years? Yeah, watch out, you'll get whiplash in Virginia who supports this and who opposes it. Um, so, so yeah, you know, when, when I took this job, um, well, well with, with One Virginia, I'm technically now with Fair Maps, but the One Virginia job, when I took it in January of, of 2015, we had an honest discussion in my first week on the job as to whether we should find another word for gerrymandering because no one know, knew what it was. And polling showed us that. And every, I mean, just all the indicators are like, nobody knows what it is. They kind of sort of maybe remember it's a thing from high school government class, but that's it. It wasn't even a pejorative term for most people. Um, and we had 3,500 supporters and we had like 100 people who had chipped in some some bucks to help get us launched. Um, and now One Virginia 2021 and Fair Maps has over 120,000 supporters and over 5,000 donors. And everybody knows what gerrymandering is and the bulk of people really, really don't like it. Um, and a lot of that is like, you know, a, a, a good chunk of that is like a lot of hard work, right? Like being present at the polls, volunteer, speaking every corner of Virginia. It's that kind of grinded out grassroots advocacy over years that does show returns. And then the other bit is you got to get lucky, right? And um, I don't necessarily, I'm not a Donald Trump fan, but his uh, presidency has really ignited and awoken people 
to this. And there's lots of folks that get engaged civically so, and they, they pretty quickly find their way to redistricting reform. So before we actually get into the, the nuts and bolts of this amendment, um, can, can you just kind of walk us through the process and like how we got to the point where we're voting on this, on this amendment in November, or I guess now since early voting started? Yeah, yeah, it's election season. <laughs> um, and there's no election night because we're not going to get returns that night. Yeah, so so basically the party in power always fights redistricting reform. So when when Ken Plum in 1982, literally the month before I was born in February, um, introduced, introduces his really good government independent redistricting commission to the House Democrats, he's like a brand new legislator. Uh, they laugh him out of the committee room. Right. They're like Democrats were complete control in the early 80s and there's not having anything to do with that. Right. Fast forward to when I started caring about and got involved in politics, Republicans were in charge of Virginia by then. And um, and, and they did the same to, to any of their members who, who thought to do that. Um, I, I think the the sense of urgency that I feel and, and that I think reformers, broadly speaking, feel is this has gotten out of hand. And it, uh, gerrymandering has gotten exponentially worse. And it's not because politicians are, are more evil or, or more egotistical or self-interested than they ever were. I assume that's constant. But what's gotten worse is the technology by which they can manipulate us. And the map drawing capability and all the data, like the Karl Rove revolution and then the Chris Jankowski Red Map, Project Red Map Super, that got really bad. So people are starting to focus on it, realizing it's not just like a, hey, to the victors go the spoils and no worries. In a couple of years, it'll all even out because people move around. No, they're now predicting where population is going to grow and drawing maps according to that to lock in a, a, a decade's worth of a majority. So that's, that's some kind of scary stuff. And what happened is, in uh, we've been throwing everything up on the wall to try to figure out what would stick. Uh, we had a perfect storm happen in 2019 and 2020 to get us to where we are, um, because no one thought we would actually get a chance to vote on this. But what happened was, 2019, big blue wave of, of Repu you know, blue Republicans in, in January and February of 2019 saw the blue wave coming. The court had ordered a redraw of some of those districts. So you're all of a sudden in this kind of like, they see this might pass. So they basically on their way out the door before they turn off their lights uh, for the session, pass kind of not everything I want, but a good chunk of it, even Stephen transparent redistricting, right? Nobody gets over on the other. Um, and then, uh, of course, the Republicans lose the majorities in both chambers. And in November of 19, we come back and the Democrats are in charge. And usually the Democrats would completely oppose this. Um, but what was really, really helpful is they hadn't gotten comfortable being in charge yet. So uh, so the, the Senate Dems, who have been pretty consistent and good and kind of had a bigger picture of this, because they're not up every two years, things like that. Um, House Dems started, you know, abandoning ship as fast as they could, uh, but we held on to some some uh, nine, uh, which was enough to team with the Republicans, who now, like I said about whiplash, all of a sudden, very big converts to ferry redistricting. Um, and, and, you know, I always think about it like, you know, the bulk of the Democrats were always in favor of redistricting reform, at least I think so. Um, but there's a, you know, a solid 20% that wasn't. I would say the opposite percentage might be true in the Republican. There's, there's always been the Jason Mieres and, and, and Jill Vogels and Emmett Hangers and others that have been in favor of redistricting reform, even when their party was in the minority. But the bulk of the Republicans are like, I don't want a, you know, independent commission of government bureaucrats drawing my lines, right? Like, so, uh, so we hit this perfect storm. And, and now Virginians, this November, have to take the final step and vote, vote yes on one. Can you describe um, or kind of highlight how gerrymandered Virginia is, um, and kind of what the the makeup of the state looks like sure there's a number of ways to look at this um i and 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 the the 
it's it's not good because it's because uh, it took so darn long. But there are uh, two court cases that succeeded in ungerrymandering significant parts of Virginia. Uh, that doesn't do you all much good if you're in the fifth district out there, congressional district, which looks like a dragon that stretches from basically Loudon or almost Loudon all the way down to the North Carolina border. But the rest of Virginia has somewhat reasonably been uh, redrawn. Uh, and so that's helpful. And what you see in those places where it's been redrawn in ways that weren't reflective of some politician's reelection strategy is you see an increase in competitive elections, not everywhere, but you see an increase in competitive elections. Not every place is going to be competitive. You see an increase in it. Uh, you see uh, more women and people of color getting elected. So um, that's the good news. Um, but Virginia's pretty poorly gerrymandered, uh, or, or I guess well gerrymandered, depending on your take on it, effectively gerrymandered. Um, because what you saw in and, and the, the 2011 gerrymander was bought into by both parties, um, but was still pretty you know, shady backroom deal kind of thing. Um, but what in 2015, which is before all the redrawings start to happen, in 2015, every member of the General Assembly was up for re-election. Uh, most all of, I think like 122 of them or something like that were running for re-election. There were some retirements and such. All of the incumbents won re-election in, in 2015. And um, the approval rating was is, is better in, our legislature than it is in Congress, but it's not that much better. Um, but they all got reelected. And then you fast forward to 2017 when there was this big blue wave and only the House of Delegates was up. The Senate wasn't up. But in 2017, big blue wave, House of Delegates, Democrats have a once in a multi-generation tsunami of an election, right? They are literally up nine and a half points over the Republicans, which in political terms, you all know, is huge. And for their for their biggest wave ever, they're still not in control of the House of Delegates. And that's just crazy. And that shows you how effective gerrymandering is. And that's actually particularly, uh, you know, acutely felt in, in uh, African-American communities because they were packing black voters into as few districts as possible. Hence, in 2019, when you got an increase in all those other good things because the court redrew it, uh, it starts to balance this out. So I want to... Um... I want to actually, I think it's worth to actually read what's going to be on the ballot for, for folks. And, um, you know, it's basically, you know, it's basically a yes, no question. And so this is, this is what is going to be presented on the ballot to voters. And it's quote, should the constitution of Virginia be amended to establish a redistricting commission consisting of eight members of the general assembly and eight citizens of the Commonwealth that is responsible for drawing the congressional and state legislative districts that will be subsequently voted on but not changed by the General Assembly and enacted without the governor's involvement and to give the responsibility of drawing districts to the Supreme Court of Virginia if the redistricting commission fails to draw districts or the General Assembly fails to enact districts by certain deadlines, end quote. So it's a very long yes or no question, um, but but it is, a, it is a yes or no question. And Brian, you know, I, I first want to start with, um, well, first, if you vote yes, you're voting to establish this commission. Yes. If you vote no, then you'll be voting for the basically the current redistricting setup. So let, let's let's start there. You know, what is that that current setup? The current setup, the Constitution says um, the legislature shall establish the districts in, in years ending in one. That's it says they also need to be equal population, compact and contiguous. Um, but there's not much else there. Basically, there's free reign for the legislature to do with it as they please, uh, and they have. Um, and so uh, that's the kind of fatal flaw in the constitution as it is now that we've just gotta change. And um, and we've seen both parties abuse it in Virginia, both parties abuse it all around the country. And we even saw in the redraw of the House of Delegates districts in 2018, um, both parties presenting racial gerrymandered maps to fix 
the maps that the court said were racially gerrymandered. It was, it was, it was, it was astounding to me because I thought maybe we had like new Democrats in there and it'd be different and it wasn't, it was the same old. Oh, so by the way, the, the, it, it's how a bill becomes a law is the short answer there. It is just, you know, a bill is introduced in one of the chambers, both chambers pass it, the governor signs it, and that's just your legislative process. And, but in this case, it's the kind of worst of the sausage making for districts. It, and so, you know, the people who are the elected officials are the ones drawing the maps. Yes. Um, and, th and that's, that's it. And so, all right. So now you vote yes. That means that you're voting to, to set up this redistricting commission, 16 people, eight people from the general assembly, eight citizen, citizen members. There's a process about how those citizen members, uh, gets, get selected. The, the whole point is that it's bipartisan. Um, can you just kind of walk us through that that commission and ultimately, you know, um, ultimately what what it's what it's designed to do? Sure, um, it is designed to stop partisan gerrymandering. That is really what it is. It 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 it's it's um, uh, the best kind of commission would have no legislators on it. We only got half of that. Um, but the what's important about it is aside from the transparency pieces, which I, which we could talk about. But the um, the the balance here is even Stephen redistricting, no party gets over on the other. So um, in all good commissions, because it is fairly easy to manipulate a basic commission, every good commission has some layers to it. Um, and ours has a lot, um, not perhaps as many as I would like, not as many as California, our friends out there do, but, but a lot. So um, the problem, the other thing we face in Virginia, just kind of a bigger picture, and I, I'm ultimately in favor of us not registering by party, but in other states that have reforms, they just take open applications from people to serve on their commission, um, but you register by party so you can kind of check, you know, I'm a Republican or I'm a Democrat or not. Uh, we don't do that. In uh, so what we do is we kind of run everything through the four legislative leaders, the, the leader, the Democratic leader in the Senate, Republican leader in the Senate, same in the House. And what, what we all know who those people are right now. It'll be Senator Louise Lucas in the Senate. She's the Democratic uh, Senate. She's the Senate pro tem. She's a Democratic senator, African-American woman from Fort Smith. Um, and on the other side, uh, her colleague Tommy Normand uh, is the Republican leader, the minority leader in the House, for the, the Senate for the Republicans from Williamsburg. Um, in the House, it will be Speaker Eileen Fillercorn. And in the House for the Republicans, it will be uh, Minority Leader Todd Gilbert. So we really run everything through those four people um, and not depending on them to do some sort of virtuous anything, because I, I don't count on that. But depending on them to at least ensure that the people they're putting on are actually Democrats or actually Republicans, according to, and, 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 the, and the amendment itself just says majority party and next majority party. So if we have some big realignment that would accommodate that, but for all practical purposes, we're talking R's and D's. So the four legislative leaders get to do a couple of key direct appointments. First, they get to appoint two members of their own caucus to serve on the commission. That's how you get your eight legislators. So you have four from the house, four from the Senate, two from each party in each chamber. Um, to pass a map, you need six votes of that group of eight to pass a map. So you need that. And then there's some, there's another layer of protection because sometimes the difference between Senate R's and Senate D's is not as big as the difference between the senators and the House. So there's added protections to make sure that if you were talking about a Senate map, you need one Republican senator and one Democratic senator to support the Senate map and the same in the House so that they don't screw each other over like has happened before and, and there's a lot of animosity between chambers so that's the that's the legislator side and i don't anticipate anything good um being there i'm not pinning any of my reform hopes on those people other than the fact that i know because you need six of the eight 
that I know the Republicans won't vote for a Democratic gerrymander, and I know that the Democrats won't vote for a Republican gerrymander. Just pure self-interest, and as long as everything's out in the open, we'll be able to tell them it is one or the other, and that they can vote accordingly. So structurally, that's helpful. Um, the citizen side is, is a little bit more complex, because what you don't want is you don't want direct appointments by those four legislative leaders of the citizens. Then it defeats the whole purpose, right? Other states have done that. It's still better maps, but it's not an ideal process. Um, so what we've done is create a selection committee that will take a pool of people and winnow them down to the final eight who will serve. And so what, who would be a good selection committee? Well, the thought that we had in our original kind of gold standard plan was retired circuit court judges are actually pretty good at this. They seat juries for a living. That's kind of what we want them to do here. So, um, so let's get retired circuit court judges. Well, then your thought was, well, you can't just have five random circuit court judges selected and have that be the selection committee because, you know, there's probably a bias, in fact, towards, towards like conservative Democrats in the pool of judges um, because those folks that were appointed in the 90s are retired now. So the best thought was run it back through those four legislative leaders. Let them pick from the retired circuit court judges, right? There's probably some liberal retired circuit court judge from Arlington, and there's probably some conservative uh, retired circuit court judge from Abington, and the partisans can pick according to that. So those, that's how you get four of the five, and then those four retired judges pick a fifth, and that's your selection committee. And you can also tell that selection committee how to do the job, which is important. Um, and there's a couple of filters to make sure it's not just anybody can serve on the commission. We'd like to add more filters. The General Assembly could do that tomorrow. They're in session right now. Um, but basically what happens is, uh, so how do you get the pool of people, right? So you got to go back to those legislative leaders because we don't register by party. So um, we, we are asking each legislative leader to appoint, to recommend 16 people at least. They can recommend more, but they have to at least recommend 16 people to that commission. That's 64 the selection committee then went to 64 down to eight, balanced by party, um, and that's how you get your eight citizens. Uh, one of the fights we had in the kind of waning moments of the 20, 2019 General Assembly session was, what's the number of recommended uh, citizens that, that's in there? And that was a big fight because um, at first it was zero. It wasn't, they had no minimum. And I was like, well, that's ridiculous. They'll just recommend their two best friends. And if you kind of think of the theory of like, if you had to bury a body, I bet you could find two friends who would help you, but you probably can't find 16. <laughs> um, and so that was the idea of, of putting a, a high floor on, on that to, to get it in and, and, and they agreed to it. And so that's where we are. Sorry, you also need six votes of the, of the eight legislators or the eight citizens on it to pass an answer. There you go. Um, can you talk about whether Long the answer. amendment <laughs> That's okay. Can you talk about whether the amendment is lacking anything that, um, in your professional opinion, you think would strengthen the amendment? So I think there's two things that I would change about the structure of the commission. One is I'd get all the legislators out of it, right? Um, I do expect that we can rely somewhat on the citizens. I don't, I don't think you perfectly rely on them, but certainly also bipartisan balance there is helpful. Um, but you know the, the ideal, the real way to improve this thing is boot the legislators off of it. Funny thing though, when you have when you don't have a citizens initiative where you go around the legislature and instead you have to go through the legislature, uh, legislature uh, legislators think they belong on this commission, and that's in, true in both parties. So getting them completely out is going to take a little bit more time, some retirements, and maybe some primary challenges. Um, but for for right now, you we're never going to get a purely independent commission through. So this half independent commission is the way to go. The other thing that I would have added is more filters on who can be recommended as a citizen to serve on the commission. Right now, you can't be a 
uh, member of the legislative family or you know, staff or whatever, but you could be a former one of those things. And while I don't think that enamors you to get picked by that selection committee, um, I would like to make sure you can't even be recommended. And the, the, we had language in, in what's called enabling legislation, um, because the other tension here is that Virginia likes to keep its constitution short. So adding a bunch of other filters in there is hard. And this is a long amendment as is. So you can take care of this in enabling legislation. It would work. It's just, you know, regular legislation. Um, but it, and it passed in bipartisan version, bipartisan in both houses, uh, chambers this year. Uh, and then it got blown up in a compromise in a, in a conference committee. Um, but it's still on the table for them to pass right now in the budget if they so chose. I don't know whether they will so choose, but I hope the idea that you could get some bad person on the committee that's of the other party will scare them enough and doing the right thing. Brian, now uh, in the old process, or the, not the old, but the current process, uh, the current process, um, the governor is kind of the backstop, right? The governor kind of makes the, the would make the final call. And, and this with the amendment, it's the Supreme Court of Virginia. Um, what's, what's the advantage of that? You know, why, why, why the Supreme Court? Is that a good thing? Is that, is that indifferent? Does it, does it make a difference? So I, I actually, let me perhaps separate those two things, because I think in the status quo, the final say is actually the court too, because for the last 40 years, the party that got screwed in the latest redistricting files a lawsuit. And, uh, they, you know, Democrats usually file in federal court, Republicans file in state court, but it goes there. So in this scenario for, for 2021 redistricting, if this amendment is defeated, Democrats draw maps. I don't think they're going to draw fair maps. I think they're going to draw a Democratic gerrymander. But even if they did draw fair maps, Republicans are still going to sue and it's going to go to the state Supreme Court at, as the status quo, right? And I don't think that's an ideal situation, but you're not going to deny anybody's right to sue. That's not a healthy way to have a, a Republic either. So, um, but but as far as the idea of the, we got rid of the governor in this amendment, and that is a huge, uh, uh, huge piece of this and a really important part. And the, and the point is, you know, if you look at every other good government reform, redistricting reform in the country, they also get rid of the governor. And the reason is because we've created this really well-crafted, balanced commission, right? And if you put the governor on top of that, then it goes to one side or another because there's not a counterbalance to the governor. I mean, maybe you could have done the governor and the next runner-up for governor and have them be the two, you know, that have to sign off. But that's not, like, it start, starts to get a little silly. So, Having the governor out of this, I mean, it's nothing personal about Ralph Northam. He's a reform supporter and we're grateful for that. But it's just, there's no good way to incorporate them in in a checks and balance, kind of perfectly balanced, teetering barely kind of um, system. As far as the court being the backstop, um, somebody's got to be the backstop, right? Every commission, especially the good ones, um, which require supermajority votes on each, you know, things, uh, have a chance at failing. And while they never have, the incentive to get their work done and to compromise is pretty strong and they, they always do it. But you still should have something there. Um, the court is the backstop anyway, so that seems reasonable. What, we, what you really see are two options. You either can do it to the court or you can give it back to the legislature. And when the Republicans were in charge in the House of Delegates, they were recommending their original plan said, if this commission deadlocks, it goes back to the legislature. We're like, that's not a good idea. Um, the funny thing is when Democrats got in charge this year, their plans all would have reverted back in case of deadlock to the legislature. Like that's still not a good idea because there's never been an example of, the, of a court gerrymandering in the country. Courts don't gerrymander and legislatures always gerrymander. So if you have a choice between the two as a reformer, the courts are your better bet. They've provided more relief and equity and redistricting than any legislature ever has. Still not ideal, but better than uh, the status quo. 
Looking back on what you started in 2015, um, has the path to reform been what you thought it would have looked like, um, or has it kind of taken a different direction? I think it's taken, I mean, it's certainly taken a lot of different twists and turns along the way. I think what I'm, I'm probably most surprised about is the high degree of minority protections we have in this amendment. Um, and I didn't expect to get that. I really didn't. Republicans aren't exactly a big fan of the Voting Rights Act, per se. And, and yet they put it in there in, in really robust ways that, that I think is, is, is great. Um, obviously, they understand the importance of that in terms of politically passing, and maybe they also believe in it, but at least politically in terms of it passing, that's a big uh, win for this. I mean, we were trying everything we could. We were in, in 2015, we were throwing everything up on the wall, a one-line prohibition against gerrymandering going in the, you know, uh, going in the state constitution, a, you know, all these, you know, just a criteria bill with no commission. You know, we were, we were, we would have been willing to settle for crumbs on redistricting reform. And, and in this case, we got pretty much half a loaf, maybe even a little bit more. Um, so I'm really happy about that. Um, but, but, but I certainly didn't expect it per se. And I knew intellectually if the Democrats ever got back in charge that they would oppose. But I'm personally a Democrat and I, and it's tough to watch. It's tough to be a part of. I, that was actually going to be the the next question was, you know, what, what, what has been your, Kind of reaction to, um, I know the the Virginia Democratic Party kind of put it, um, you know, kind of in their platform to to oppose the amendment. Now, I think it was, you know, I think the the procedural part of that was a little, you know, it was a kind of a whole package full of things. But uh, but still, I mean, it was it was in there to oppose the amendment. And so have have you been um, have you been surprised at the um, at the the opposition you've seen from Democrats? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. Um, I mean, I guess it's 2020, so nothing should surprise anybody, right? <laughs> um, but but it's been it's it's been tough. I much prefer to argue with Republicans over fair districting than Democrats. Um, and and what's interesting to me is that the kind of tinfoil hat conspiracy theories about the state Supreme Court that I've heard coming from Democrats, where I have Democratic delegates privately tell me, Brian, that's a load of crap. But then they they send out a newsletter and they oppose it, saying, "You know, can't trust that court." I'm like, "Come on, right?" Like the Dem quite frankly, the Democrats are to know in the state Supreme Court this year between Confederate statue removal and mass requirements and eviction moratoriums. Like the Democrats are winning in this court. This court's not a partisan uh, hack job court. They are very anti-plaintiff and they are um, too deferential to the legislature. But that's kind of it. So. Um, yeah, I, you know, it's, it's been hard to argue Democrats, but I think you're right about how they kind of snuck it into their platform and then they use that as a tool to say, see, all Democrats are post for it. But if you look at the Democrat polling numbers on this, it's still in the 70s. And that's that's true even in our latest tracking poll we did in September. So after all of this kind of brouhaha um, of Democratic parties coming out and committees coming out against it, we're still in the 70s. You, you know, you, you mentioned uh, the 92 election and it's, you know, it's kind of um, when you think about and I wonder how much this plays into it. Right. Where the the Republicans, if you look at the presidential election since 92, they've won the popular vote one time. And that was in 04 when uh, George W. won. And and so but they've been elected three times. And you look at the Senate and uh, the Senate is majority Republican, but they represent a minority of of the country. And so it's almost like it's it's kind of an official like that's the approach is to try to rule from the minority. And, and so, you know, I, I just wonder how much 
you know, when you see, um, when you see half and half on a commission, right? When um, the state is trending in a, in a democratic way, I, I just wonder how much, how much that kind of plays. But at the same time, you know, Brian, I, I think when I hear Democrats oppose this, it's kind of to bring up like, oh, it, we need a nonpartisan commission. And it's like, it, it's like a different question, right? It, you know, the question is the amendment and is the amendment better than the status quo? And it just feels like it, it's a different question that then is being asked on the ballot. Yeah, I agree. So they always try, you know, it's like a pinky promise of we'll do better later. And there's, I just, no reason to trust them to do so. We've seen what they did in 2011. We saw what they tried to do in 2018. Like, it's just a mess. Um, but to your question about kind of the rule by minority, I think that's it. That, that is the essence of why this reform and a bunch of others are important to push. Um, and I have some of my Democratic friends, and I think perhaps the most honest objection I hear from them is, we're a blue state now in Virginia. Why would we unilaterally disarm while Texas is still gerrymandering the hell out of their districts? And I think that's a valid question. And they, there is a good answer to it. Um, there's several, actually. First, I think Democrats, and I'm one of them, can win in fair districts. I think Democrats are going to you know, compete on fair playing field or even reasonably fair playing field. I feel confident that good candidates will win. Um, but also, if you look at the places where we've done redistricting reform, if you just look at the states in 2018, in the latest wave of reform, it was, um, it was Michigan, Missouri, Colorado, Ohio, and Utah four of those states voted for Trump. So it's not some party, you know, it's not just like a bunch of blue states reforming. Well, Brian, we'll, um, we'll actually close this with the question that we ask all of our guests. And so, um, you know, we are the Frank Batten School for Leadership and Public Policy. And so um, what's the leadership lesson that you've learned that you wish someone would have told you as either an undergraduate or graduate student? That's such a good question. You should have given me that ahead of time. So I had a really thoughtful answer. Um, uh, no, I, I really, or I should have done my research and listened to your podcast before, but, um, you know, I, I, I think politics is more personal than I thought it was. I thought politics was a much more of a team sport and it is, it's not that it's not. Um, but you listen to these legislators and they talk about my districts and my lines and, and, and it's so much more personal to them. So going after how we draw quote unquote, my district is a real personal threat to them. Um, and no matter what they, they tell you know, on the outside, you know, behind closed doors or when you give them an opportunity to draw maps, it's not just that they're drawing maps to screw the other side, the other team, and they are doing that too, but it is they are very specific. They are carving out their primary opponents. They're drawing, and this may be a more benign answer, you know, probably they're drawing in their mom into the district, right? And things like that, and, and it's just hyper-personal. Um, so uh, that's hard to solve against. Um, I think this amendment does a lot of that, especially the transparency helps it because I think that's the kind of backroom stuff that's the worst. Um, but I, I think I underestimated, not even just when I was in college, but at the beginning of this job, how personal gerrymandering and, and these kind of things are to, their, to, to the individual politicians. And so if I'd have known that, I would have probably approached it at a, at a different, more personal level to them. Instead, I've always kind of done it at a academic, hey, here's what's better, here's what's right kind of thing. But what we're seeing, what I saw from Republicans was a gut reaction against it for years. And what I've seen from Democrats is the same. That'll do it for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Brian Cannon of Fair Maps VA for joining us and also to Morgan for co-hosting. We will be back for another episode next week. Stay safe.